Hi everybody, welcome to Just Making Out Loud. My name is Desiree. Today I am speaking with Coleman Hughes, who is who is a writer at Quillette. He's also a student at Columbia studying philosophy. And he has a blog over at afrooptimist.blogspot.com if you want to go and check it out. He is known a bit in this YouTube political sphere and has done some interviews on various channels that you can go and check out. And he he found me, I'm not sure where actually, I think on Twitter some time ago and reached out to me and we thought it would be cool to have a discussion about topics that maybe we could connect on and that were important to us. Hi. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I found you because of Benjamin Boyce. He interviewed both of us within okay. the space of a couple months. Okay. And then I think I rediscovered you on Twitter around the time you were shadow banned or banned from Patreon. From PayPal. Yeah. And then I clicked through and went to your videos and was very impressed. So. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So I don't know where to start. Um, I, from what I know, you speak a lot about race in the United States and particularly about uh, your upbringing and your awakening to a different narrative than the one that you were taught and the shift in your own perspective as well. Could mm. you start with that, maybe? Yeah, um, I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in a mixed suburb, maybe 30% black, 60% uh, white, good, fairly, fairly integrated, and I, didn't think much about race growing up until middle school, high school. And uh, at my high school, when I was a sophomore or junior, I went to a conference out of town called the People of Color Conference. I was sort of, it was, they paid my way for two or three days to go to Houston and with a group of maybe a thousand, a few hundred, maybe a thousand kids. And we did workshops on all these ideas that I hadn't heard intersectional feminism, um, uh, they, they kind of, they, the tenets of critical race theory, uh, ways of looking at yourself and society in, in racial terms and of analyzing things in terms of oppression and internalized oppression. Uh, so that was the first time I was exposed to what I would now call social justice ideology. And at the time I, I was very compelled by it. I thought it was very moving. Uh, I thought it was certainly true. And uh, I had heard no counterpoints to this, this view, so I basically absorbed it. And I went back to my school. I gave a speech to my school when I was a junior in high school about internalized oppression, uh, sort of reporting on what I had learned at this conference, sharing it with the school, the idea that black people internalize the stereotypes and the narratives of white supremacy and live out those those stereotypes. And you can't even really escape white supremacy in the privacy of your own mind. That's the view. And my school got kind of increasingly radical, and I'm somewhat ashamed to say I played a part in that. Uh, you did. But yeah, yeah. But after I left college, after I left high school, I began reading and listening to podcasts outside my bubble and meeting people from different parts of the country. And slowly, this was right around the time that Black Lives Matter was really uh, kicking into gear, 2014, started questioning what I had been taught at that seminar and in general. 
and uh, started listening and reading people like John McWhorter, Glenn Lowry, and uh, you know, one by one, many of the thing, many of the ideas I had found compelling and ways of looking at race began to not seem very compelling to me, and it began to seem like they didn't really have much of a basis in helping black people, um, and were more about more about pushing grievances and uh, just dredging up grievances from history, making them fresh in people's minds, people like me who would have no objective reason to feel a grievance towards the only country I'll ever live in. But when given, when, when, when the, the, the litany of, of, of injustice against black people is rehearsed over and over again, you can, you can grow, you can kind of congeal your identity as a black person around that grievance narrative, even if you have no real reasons to feel those grievances. So that's a b basically a summary of how I came to where I am. Okay. Uh, this is something I want to ask you, seeing as you've somehow, I guess, broken out of that bubble, is before you heard all of this um, critical race theory, would you describe yourself, would you have described yourself as a black person with a black identity? Because that's something I encounter, um, I've encountered from day one. Um, from many black Americans, but which I wasn't really used to in terms of the how much of a primary component it is in the concept of self. Like, were you always like that? And a second question as a follow-up is, why do you think you were susceptible to that kind of narrative also? Very good questions. The first, uh, no, I did not always think of myself as a black person. When I was growing up, my, I, I knew daddy was black and mommy was Puerto Rican. So I viewed myself mathematically as half Puerto Rican, half black, and therefore mixed, mixed race. Uh, I didn't particularly care about that identity. I, I thought it was kind of cool to be mixed just because it was kind of fun to say as like a, a nine-year-old, but it was, there was no sense of, there was no deep sense of self invested in the mixedness or uh, the sense of being biracial. It was just a more or less a neutral fact about me. Mm -hmm. uh, I think over time I started calling myself black rather than half Puerto Rican, half black, not consciously or intentionally, but it just happened. And I think in retrospect, the reason I started doing that seems to me to be because there's much more to be gained in terms of social capital by calling yourself black. There's a you're allowed to, uh, how do I put it? Um, you, you don't, you don't see as much Hispanic identity politics. There's, there's less to be gained from emphasizing the half Puerto Rican side of oneself in the current milieu in the current environment in, in, in the spaces I run being black gets you something that being Hispanic doesn't really. So I think, Unconsciously, I picked up on that and started emphasizing the, 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 the black half of my genome, identity, whatever, um, ancestry. The ancestry, yeah. yeah. Um, and then your second question was... Why do you think you were so susceptible, perhaps? Yeah, so why was I so susceptible? Um... I think part of it is that there's a kernel of truth to 
some of the things I was taught. For example, the idea of microaggressions, right? I think it's a misnomer in the sense that we already have a word for that. It's a faux pas. It's a mistake. Somebody asks you, oh, where are you really from? Because you're Asian. They assume you're not American. Uh, it's a false assumption. Does it mean that they hate you? No, it's just a faux pas. It's a, you know, you, you move on. And uh, it's, in that sense, it's not an aggression. An aggression is by nature intentional. But those kinds of things do happen. You know, in, in middle school, I had a big afro, and you know, I, I was coming from a school that was, you know, a third black, where having African hair would, would be pretty normal. But I went to a school that was almost entirely white, and so a lot of kids there hadn't really seen an afro before. And they would touch it and tug on it in ways that I, I just, it really kind of drove me crazy as like a sixth and seventh grader. And that's the kind of thing that, so when that happens, there's a narrative ready, a, a prepackaged narrative for someone like me at that age, which is the kids who are touching your hair. And it, it's not just that they're making honest, silly mistakes that middle schoolers make. It's that they are in, they are embedded into a system of white supremacy. They grew up in a society that told them that the world belonged to them, and they grew up, you grew up in a society that told you you were ugly and stupid. And they're touching your hair in a sense is on a continuum with slavery and Jim Crow. You you're participating in this age-old experience of black oppression, this fundamentally American experience of black oppression. And even though it may seem like a very small thing, uh, it is it is actually a profound experience of oppression that you're going through, and you ought to be inducted into this cult of victimhood. So that narrative was there for me. That's one reason I had those little experiences that could be that could grow like a tumor into a sense of victimhood, uh, and you know, utilized by this ideology. So that's one reason I was susceptible to it. Second reason I think is probably just my personality. I'm a, I'm a rather intense person and I, uh, I, I always took ideas very seriously. So I, I get the sense that if I had grown up religious, which I didn't, I would have been a very, very religious person rather yeah. than a moderate. So. Okay. What part did you play? I'm just curious at your, I think you said high school. That is, you were ashamed of, which I'm not sure you should be ashamed of. If well, ashamed my, is the right word. What, what I'm, yeah, what I was saying is just my high school, like much of the country around 2014, began to take a turn, a swing into identity politics, um, and I was part of the reason that it took that turn. So, you know, my high school would invite speakers from around the country, who would come and talk about concepts like white privilege and we'd break out into small sessions and talk about all the ways in which our identities contributed or uh, suffered from systems of oppression. This was all fundamentally new to me and to most people at the school. It kind of swept through the school and it's from, from what I'm told it has swept through my high school since I've, since I've uh, uh, left. And I, I think it's it comes from a good place but I think it's deeply misguided. I think it's uh, it's making kids 
attach a sense of importance to their identities that they didn't previously have in a way that's unhealthy and tribal. Um, so I, I, I regret having participated in that wave. I see. Yeah. Um, I agree um, that it's unhealthy. I don't think it's wrong to say, I, I don't think I'll ever really be like that myself, but I don't think it's wrong to attach your identity to your color if you associate that color with a certain culture based on your experiences. Mm. I don't think it's necessarily unhealthy, but I do think in the way that it's used now to, it almost um, stymies, I believe that's the word, proper um, insights into yourself because you, you, have a, you have an immediate answer mm. in front of you when something when you have a grievance with someone, you have a very immediate answer about what's happening. And um, I think in terms of you, you think that maybe there's a kernel of truth and you were mentioning a lot of, I guess it's due to segregation, some in your majority white school, um, they were touching your hair or things like that. I think wherever there is difference, it's very easy to attribute malice to the actions of individuals when they encounter something new. I also think that it's possible for there to actually be malice. And I think the way that people are taught to respond to that is wrong for two reasons the, when people encounter difference. Because when, there's, when there is malice, um, I think people are taught to hurt from it way too much than they need to be, particularly um, Black Americans, I think they're very, very, very sensitive. And I don't want to sound insensitive when I say that they're sensitive. You know, I understand that, that that's for a reason, but I do think it's, it's due to culturally how they're taught to perceive certain situations. Mm -hmm. So I think it's wrong when there is ma malice, how people are being taught to approach a certain situation, but also when there isn't malice, that it's, it's also wrong that they think that they can know what, someone else thinks if that makes sense so i think either way when you're experiencing true um say hatred or disdain or something negative about your person due to something like your ethnicity um or when it isn't that it isn't that that's actually going on that the way particularly um in my experience american culture goes about dealing with those issues is not good mm. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, I completely agree with you that, uh, the culture of black Americans is extremely sensitive and there's a paradox here too, because, uh, we're often taught to say that black people are strong. We're proud to be black. We are strong. I'm a strong black man. I'm a strong black woman. There's a contradiction between that and getting extremely offended and breaking into a million pieces at the most slight the slightest provocation, like, like, you know, if someone, someone questions on NBC, like Megyn Kelly did, whether we can do blackface, right? Like mm -hmm. she, she's not even saying we can certainly do it. She's questioning. There's a contradiction between melting as a culture and, and insisting that she be fired and saying at the same time, actually, Oh, we're, we're really strong. We can take as much as anyone. The, the, uh, I, I increasingly feel like black American culture, we're like 
the kid at the table that everyone knows is fragile because he is constantly advertising his fragility and it makes you lose respect for that person. You don't want to be around that person because that person can't take a joke. And by the way, this is this has very little precedent in the civil rights movement, in the actual ideas and practices that led to black people getting equality in the first place. I've, I've been reading a lot of Bayard Rustin recently. Bayard how, Rustin. How do the, you spell that? I don't know who that is. Uh, B B A Y A R D. Uh, Rustin R U S T I N. He was the chief organizer of the March on Washington, and he was uh, one uh, one of Martin Luther King's strategists and one of the people responsible for teaching him the strategy of nonviolent protest, and a brilliant writer. And he, you know, he was arrested two dozen times for civil rights advocacy. Uh, the only reason he, his name isn't bigger is because he was openly gay at the time and he couldn't really be the face of, of the movement. But uh, uh, he, he wrote in the 1950s that eventually we should get to the point where white people can do blackface and black people can do whiteface. Mm-hmm. Of course, he said, he said we're not there now because the history of minstrel is part of the reason why black people have had self-esteem issues in this culture. So he totally acknowledged the, ra- the racist past of minstrelsy. But in the 1950s, he was willing to say, obviously, at some point in the future, there is a time where we're just going to have to be humans and we're all going to have to play by the same rules. If I can make fun of your skin color, you can make fun of mine and we can have a good laugh about it. And then whatever. And this is what Megyn Kelly says. And everyone goes berserk. We can't claim at the same time that we're this strong people, quote unquote, and and break into a million pieces the second something happens. Um, but I did want to ask you, you, you said before, there are healthy ways to uh, attach your identity to your skin color. What did you what do you mean by that? And where do you draw the line between healthy and unhealthy? I think, for me, I draw the line at how, well, I guess when I say attach, you might think I mean primary, but in how much of it um, like how much that part of your identity is integral to your definition. So for in my ideal world, I would like way downplay it. But for other people, it might be, I don't know. I don't know. I can't put numbers or like measurably quantify it. But if they can see it as important in telling their story, but not the critical thing. I think that's what I mean when I say that. So maybe when I say attached to someone's identity, that means the critical thing. But I mean just not so much the primary component mm. of what makes you you. Because mm. for a lot of people, it's the, it's the first thing. It's like just the first thing they think of. Yeah, I mean, that just it, I, I think that's true. That's, that's a true description of many people. But it also doesn't make sense. People do a lot of stupid things, in my view, and that's one of them. Um, did you look at this story about the, the guy who goes to Columbia University? About a month ago, he went off on a rant in front of the university library. And he was caught on film at like four in the morning yelling at a group of kids. I love being white. White people are the best thing that have ever happened to the world. 
We built civilization. We built science and technology. And now you want to tell us to stop because, oh, my God, we're so bad. I love being white. I don't hate other people. I just love being white. It's, it went viral. It's yeah. covered in all, all mainstream media. No, I actually, I, um, I didn't, I didn't hear of it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Check this out. It's, re it's really interesting. But I thought, I thought it was very interesting because there were certain sentences he said in there that were almost verbatim quotes of things that Black Lives Matter leaders have said, except about black people. Right. So he said, he said, uh, I love myself and I love white people. DeRay McKesson, the, basically the poster boy for Black Lives Matter, tweets pretty much every week on Twitter, I love my blackness and yours. Right. Almost the same sentence. Um, Alicia Garza, one of the three co-founders of Black Lives Matter, said in a commencement address, we owe, there would be no civilization without black women. We owe everything to black women, right? So this is right. almost verbatim what he said about white men. Yeah, and it they is. get away with it and he doesn't. And I do think that there's there's something odd about that. I think we should we should want to narrow the, the gulf between how we treat those two things. But I'm inclined to, to go towards the side that says they're both stupid and irrational and we should stop engaging in that whole style of thinking about race rather than they're both okay. Yeah, I, I think it's good to like love or try to love and accept every aspect of yourself. And some of that does include your skin color. Mm -hmm. um, but that's different from what the second statement about loving what white people do or civilization. That seems a lot more abstract to me and sort of empty headed. And also, I think, points to insecurity on the part of the person speaking it because white civilization is very abstract. You know, it's, it's something that's like outside of you and what you've done. So for you to point to that as something that you can attach to yourself rather than say your whiteness being like a part of your uh, physical form in the world, um, I think that the second part is... is I think you said silly or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that's what I yeah. think about statements um, like that in particular. And even if you do love your whiteness or you love your blackness, I don't, I don't know why you would need to proclaim it to the world unless you felt like you need to make sure that the world knew because you felt like they didn't. They didn't. You had to say, you know, like to me, that's like I'm insecure about this. And something else I want to say is that... Um, that's inevitable if you have other groups saying similar things that you will find that eventually, after them trying to stay away from it for a very long time, eventually other people will start forming their own identity tribes and saying similar mm -hmm. things, which is sad. Yeah, I think it's also inevitable when you're on a university campus like I am where you can say virtually anything about white people and get away with it uh, just because it's fashionable. It kind of shows that you are woke, that you, that you get it about racism. If you just do a kind of passing comment about how white men are terrible, a, a very popular one is to make comments about how capitalism is terrible. Mm -hmm. It's almost never from econ majors or people who actually understand capitalism. It's just a way of signaling that you get it yeah. Um, so it's inevitable in that context when you can say whatever you want about white men. Uh, you know, the, the syllabus is just a bunch of dead white men. Like, what if what if I was on a campus where I had to hear 
Martin Luther King and Bayard Rustin and James Baldwin and Tom Sowell dismissed as dead black men, not as bad writers, but just as dead black men. That would piss me off. And, you know, I can, I can imagine if, uh, you know, if I have a few too many conversations like that in a row, being, being drunk at 4 a.m. outside the library and ranting at somebody about it in defiantly, you know, um, but th Thomas Sowell also, he, he has a great quote that I'm going to bosh right now, but it's something like the people who are least justified in expressing personal pride are the most likely to express pride for their race, nation, or ideology, something like that. Yeah, because they don't themselves yeah. have anything to, to offer. <laughs> yeah, except this guy. I mean, this guy had written like two physics books already. So yeah, but maybe, did, maybe did, did, anybody, did anybody know of it, though? Was it, like, being... Had a couple of Amazon reviews. No, it wasn't... I don't think it was hmm. famous, but had some good Amazon reviews. You were talking about the double standards, like, yeah. black people can say certain things, but white people aren't allowed to say it. That was actually my, um, quote-unquote, red pill moment. Um, hmm. Because a lot of people don't know this because I don't talk about it, but... Because I wasn't like you, like I definitely wasn't part of a wave of uh, individuals who were trying to kind of be activists for um, giving a voice to black oppression or anything like that. But I was definitely sympathetic to it. Like I didn't write it off when I heard it because there, you know, like you said, the, the kernel of truth thing, except I think back to the past, not, not really to the present. There's a history of, you know, this transatlantic slave trade and all of that stuff. And I do think, um, I don't, I don't really care about it that much, which sounds really weird, but I do think there's also a history of people trying to oppress groups of people. Like I think that has happened in history. Um, and there are people who would want to do that today as well. Um, so I think I was definitely sympathetic to it yeah. in, in the past, but yeah my moment of realization that something was off was a double standards. My very first video was me talking about how there were, there were people just writing off white people who they'd never met before as being slave, slave owners. And like, and I heard that and I was so used to everyone talking about racism from white people, which I believe exists, but I'd never heard anyone talk about this very obvious thing that I'd seen up close and personal and that when I hadn't really seen the opposite yet. And I was like, this is really weird that I don't hear anything about it. So that was to me... Wait, what did you not hear anything about? Oh, racism from black people. Like I was always Toward, hearing... Towards white people? Yes, I was always yeah. hearing about racism from everybody else towards yeah. black people, which is true, which exists, I think. But I'd never, ever heard it the other way. And I think it's most allowed from colored people of color yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> colored people of color <laughs> yeah i was trying to say the it right is, thing it is strange that you'll get fired if you say colored people but if you say people of color which is the same words in reverse yeah. you're woke it's very strange yeah and um there's something else i want to talk about was kind of or or different perspectives um for me coming here, and I'm sure for many other people who immigrate to the U.S., who there are a lot of, you're, it's like you're thrown into a, new, a whole new game where you mm. have to learn all this terminology and learn what's like right to say and mm. what's not right to say. And it's almost as if the, 
the clutch of America's dark racist past cannot let go enough to allow fresh perspectives to come in that mm. could possibly shine light or possibly change the way things are and the way people interact. Everybody has to come in and like lockstep with the identities that they've already been granted or given just because of how they look. Mm. And I, I think that America is losing a lot because of that. Because, yes, you have a terrible past, you're still wounded, you're still trying to figure this stuff out, but maybe you should, you know, listen to people who don't necessarily come from your society. So maybe they could yeah. change how things are a little bit. Yeah. I mean, in my, I, I'll, I'd like to talk to you more about this. Um, I wonder what, well, let me make a couple points first. One is I totally agree with you that, I mean, all the language policing stuff, ironically, it's probably falls harder, falls hardest on people for whom English is a second language, namely immigrants. So if you're going to tell me that anyone who doesn't say they every time, I mean, I call people they who want to be called they as a gender neutral pronoun. I just think it's a, it's a, it's the, it's, it's the respect that I would grant anyone, you know, if I want to be called something yeah. if that's important to me. So that's my personal philosophy. But if you're going to be so militant about it, that anyone who doesn't use the right pronoun that you invented yesterday is going to get thrown under the bus. Who do you think that's going to hit hardest? Not native speakers of English. It's going to be English as a second language. People from Mexico and Guatemala. If you're going to say Latinx, for example, I don't know if you've heard this word yet. I thought but it was it's like now, Latinx. It's Latinx. Okay, I don't, I don't know. I always say it's that a, when I it's read It's a it. neologism that has no basis in the Spanish language. Spanish, mm. every, every noun is either feminine or masculine. It's even more bifurcated than English. Mm-hmm. Like people coming over the border speaking Spanish are not calling them, they're calling you Latino or Latina. And they're going to be the people who are least able to absorb the very rapid language changes. So I think that's a very good point. Um, I, actually but never, I, guess, I actually never thought about it in the way you just, you just put it. Like I never thought about the language like, like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's ironic because they also feel themselves to be on, on the side of the xenophiles against the xenophobes. They, they feel themselves to be on the side of immigrants, right? Yeah. But um, I wonder what your, you probably know more black immigrants than I do. Most of the black yeah. people I know are, are born here, although I do know a fair number of, I think Jamaica, Jamaica and Nigeria, probably the most, mm-hmm. maybe Ghana, third. Mm-hmm. Or I, I know people from all, I don't all know, three of those places. I don't know the statistics, but I do yeah. know a lot of Caribbean immigrants yeah. because of where I'm from. What What in your position is are, are the big differences in terms of perspectives between Black Americans and Black Caribbeans? Um, I think for well, the biggest thing is what you just said in terms of describing us as black Caribbeans, like people don't describe themselves as mm. black, black something. They mm. would describe themselves, like, I, like, I, like there are songs, like it's not like there is no sense of that identity at all. You know, like people, people care about that to a degree, but their primary identity is their ethnicity, which is different from their race. Mm. So that's what, that I would say is probably the biggest thing. The other thing is that I don't think they are so butthurt about 
that sounds I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. No, but no, they no, like no, it's fine. about about things. Like it might annoy them, you know, like they might think that say like Trump is racist or something because of something they've heard, but it's not the end of the world. And they're not going to hate you because you even considered thinking about something different. And that's something also when I think about growing up um, and the intellectual environment that I was in, it was okay to think differently about sensitive topics. Like you could have an argument and it would be okay, you know? Yeah. Like even about something like that, such yeah. as race or some topic like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my, my friend Camille Foster, I don't know if you have heard of him. I've heard brilliant. Him. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant guy. Has a podcast called The Fifth Column. He is ethnically Jamaican, but from Washington, D.C. And he is so fed up with the entire blackness construct that we have in America that despite being very dark-skinned, he just does not identify as black. He'll say, I'm from Washington, D.C., my, you know, I'm ethnically Jamaican, but I don't, I don't traffic in this racial nonsense that you guys are going crazy over in this country. Yeah. And we really don't realize that we're going crazy over it because it's such a part of the culture. We're so much in the water that we don't, um, like even someone like me who I, I vibrate and resonate towards like colorblind and post-racial. I think those are ideals worth striving for and worth defending even someone like me, it's it's hard. It would be hard for me to just do what Camille does and say, you know, in, a, in a room full of people, well, I'm not black. I'm from New Jersey. Mm -hmm. I'm not anything. Like we're so I'm so I'm so in that in that cultural context. Yeah. Um, but how much of how much of a how much of the difference between the way the typical Jamaican views race and the typical Black American does is a function of the fact that Jamaica is like. 90 plus percent people of African descent and America is more heterogeneous. Do you think if Jamaica were a multi-racial, truly multi-racial country that there would be more of that identification or do you think it's something deeper about the culture? Um, I, I've actually always thought that it's due to the multiracial history of Jamaica that people don't identify more. Because, mm. I mean, I can't verify this, and that's the thing about a lot of these topics, um, is that I think because of, say, the immigration of different groups of people, including Africans, to work, to do hard labor, in Jamaica, there's probably more um, of a struggle among different groups rather than only the African struggle. Even though only Africans were slaves, mm -hmm. but there were also indentured servants that came over. And then there were also the Tainos mm -hmm. or the Amerindians or the Arawaks. So I think even though Jamaica is 90% black right now, it wasn't always that way. I think mm. I did some reading and I'm not sure because there isn't that much documentation of this stuff as I'm positive there is for the U.S. That there was, um, especially after independence and emancipation, a lot of what they would term white flight from Jamaica. Mm. And then also I think a lot of Chinese left. 
but mm-hmm. I'd have to verify all of this stuff. But even though these groups or some of these groups might have left, um, and there are all sorts of mixed, like the mixed in between population that also left, but they're in the history of the, the culture. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's the same relationship between the races. Yeah. The I, was, I was in Jamaica two weeks ago and I, I saw one Chinese looking person to me as a, as an one? American. You only saw one? Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess I Wait. only saw one and they, they, this person started talking and I, as a naive American, I expected either an American accent or some other kind of accent. But what came out was a Jamaican, like the full mm-hmm. patois, patois thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was for a second, I was just like, yeah, that, that can be weird for people. I think it's also Indians. I heard someone describe them as Arabic sometime. I was like, oh my god, that's horrible because they're not. Because mm. <laughs> that's all people know. Um, I'm surprised you only saw one. I think it must have just been where you were, because like more of the multiracialness is in like the capital, the capital city. So yeah, I was I was in uh, I I flew into Montego Bay and I was in Negril. Okay, yeah, yeah. But you were, you didn't go to the other end of the island. No, I didn't. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so I, I do think that that's important. And there are also um, a good number of Irish that also went to Jamaica, not as slave masters, of course. So I don't know. Like, I, I think the history is different. And so... There has been racial tension in Jamaica. I've never experienced it. I've only read about it, so I know it's existed. But I don't think it came, it it played out in the same way as in the mm-hmm. US. And there isn't that much literature on it. Like, the only thing I've really found is people's own opinions because people aren't as obsessed about it, I think. Yeah. yeah. I was reading, when I was in Jamaica, I was reading the wikipedia page on on the history of jamaica Mm -hmm. the economic history and i was reading how they kind of tried socialism in the 70s i think yeah 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 they did and it backfired terribly it was really interesting and i I never i was surprised that i had never heard it talked about i have a video about it on my channel you do yeah yeah it's called the effects of socialism in jamaica yeah that's also something i i had to learn on my own Mm. even like being a very well-educated person in Jamaica, and no one ever like went really into the why we're at the stage we're at today. They just talked up about talk up to the point of talk about up to the point of independence, yeah. and then they kind of leave it alone. And uh, a lot of people leave because of the socialistic tendencies of the country. Um, like I, I, I left, want to leave. So, um, yeah, it's, it's socialism basically destroys unless it didn't have a really didn't have like a really rapid growth rate for a few years after independence and then that's what wikipedia said i don't i don't know i do know that jamaica the jamaican economy was very strong at the time of independence um that was when it was still under british rule and then everything declined because people just wanted things and they wanted yeah, to yeah. take it back from the evil oppressors. Oh, there's something, yeah. uh, talking about that, you said something earlier about how you thought that a lot of the, the critical race theory stuff you were learning about, I think, in high school, 
mm-hmm. that people were coming from a good place. And I actually, I think that, so there may be people like you who, um, I'm guessing you were mostly well off just from what you said or okay. Yeah. Um, who maybe it's more like an intellectual pursuit for in terms of like, oh, this logically makes sense, so I shall believe. But I think for some people, it's more of a uh, tapping into their vice of envy for mm. other people doing well who don't mm. look like them. So I don't always think it's coming from a good place when people buy into that stuff. I think it's coming from almost like a needy in order to explain away the situation they're in. And a lot of it is probably not even their fault. You know, like we don't choose where we're born or who we're born to. So, but that doesn't mean that in the same way that people who aren't well off don't choose it, the people who are don't necessarily choose it either. Mm. So I, I'm just saying, I don't always think it's from a good place. That that's it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good point. I think I agree with that. I think, uh, the notion of privilege is very much in vogue nowadays. And I think, uh, especially white privilege, uh, I think white privilege is one of, uh, a thousand different kinds of privilege in life. What, to the extent that it exists, to the extent that it is an advantage to be, to be white in America rather than black, which is arguable. Um, or, or, or other colors. Everybody always forgets that there are other people. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, to the extent that that is a, a useful way of thinking about the intersection of privilege and race, which I'm not sure that it is, that's just one of a hundred or a thousand different ways in which a person person can be privileged. You can, you know, there's health privilege. You can be healthy or not. You can be born into money or not. Mm-hmm. You can. You're. You know, we know at this point that every trait that matters to your success in life is deeply determined by by genetics not completely of course but there's often genetics often explains 50 percent or more of the variance in psychological traits whether it's intelligence or openness to experience other elements of a person's personality that is that is privilege if if they're ever uh if 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 we're going to talk about privilege we should talk about privilege we should talk about all the kinds of privilege that in my view, completely swamp the effect of skin color privilege. Right. I mean, like what, what privileges the, I, I, I've had privileges that I know so many of my white friends don't. Mm-hmm. So it, whether it's, it, it can be money, but it, it's just beyond that. I know that for example, I enjoy working. I enjoy writing. I was good at math the, from the first moment I tried it in kindergarten. That was not hard work. That was not grit. It was not merit. It was good luck. It was my parents were also good at math. And that's how my mom got out to South Bronx and went to Stuyvesant and whatever. She was just good at it. People want to ascribe that to hard work, but hard work itself is something that is somewhat determined by luck. Your ability to work hard, your your predilection for hard work Mm -hmm. is itself determined. So that's a kind of privilege too. It's it's privilege all the way down, and I think there's this unnecessarily narrow focus on racial privilege. And by the way, it's not even clear that people talk about white privilege as if it's a kind of gas that fills up the container of the country, so that anywhere you are, it pays to be white rather than black. But it's really context dependent. Mm-hmm. If you're applying to college, it's 
very useful to be black at that moment. If you're applying for a job that has a diversity and inclusion program, it's very useful to be black. And there are other contexts, but, others. Can I, can I pause you? Yeah. Um, do you usually fill those things out? Because I, I definitely have like a moment of ethical questioning every single time I have to fill something up. Like, well, should I try to use this to my advantage or should I stick by my principles or should I just try to do the best for myself? Or like, what's, what's that like for you? Um, that's a very good, that's a very good question. I, I usually fill it out. Hmm. I don't usually, I, yeah. I usually like decline to answer. I mean, I figure if, if I'm gonna get into this thing anyway, whatever it is, mm-hmm. if I don't fill it out, they'll just go even deeper into, <laughs> into the pool of applicants yeah. to, to satisfy their, their, well, I guess they claim to not do quotas anymore, but in effect, it's just the same. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe that's just a rationalization. I I don't know. I was just I just wonder what the experience is of other people, especially maybe people like me who more are immigrants. I know I say this all the time, and my audience will be bored with me saying this again. But I was really worried out when I first came to the U.S. and I kept seeing these questions on these forums, and I used to always put other. Caribbean for like how do you identify I always oh. other or other West Indian but now mm. I just tend to ignore the question altogether yeah so I, do, I feel weird every time I, I I'm faced with that yeah. so I sympathize um there there's something I wanted to say when you were um I, when you were talking about um the privilege I wanted to say that we need to stop in my opinion I would really like it if the societal discourse around privilege and inequality um, and those who need welfare, any kind of welfare, welfare that could be, it's mostly monetary because monetary value can buy everything else. I think that we should just focus on those specific traits. And when we're doing all these statistical comparisons, they always focus on, they always divide the population into racial categories, but I think it, we should just divide it into the particular thing we're concerned with. And I, I think you've talked about this stuff before, um, but I would really like to see society go into this direction of, if you want to look at how poverty affects the country, look at poverty. Maybe you will get like twice as many black people who are poor when you're looking at poverty, but you're looking at poverty. So you'll capture all the other people too who aren't yeah. black, who fits into that. And I think when you're describing, say, success, um, we should not just look at color, but also the traits that people have, like you were talking about, your intelligence, or perhaps, I don't know, maybe the high school you went to, that there are different things yeah. that might correlate with the success that you have, or the, the kind of program you got into, um, or your teaching method, or I don't know, the kind of food you eat, Stable family, having a stable family home. Yeah. Yeah, I, have a, I have a white friend who both of his parents were meth heads. Yeah. Like, how is that not a type of privilege? Why is it that there's a sense of which, like, because I'm black, I can sort of stand on, I can stand on the suffering of other black people who do legitimately have very tough lives and say, well, since I'm a part of their group, then I get a part of that victim status. Yeah, but 
It doesn't I don't make know. sense. When I, when I think about black people suffering in the world, I do not think about Americans. I think mostly about like really poor countries or say like in Africa, not to offend anyone. I know there are many Africans who aren't suffering um, or poor people in Jamaica. Like it, I, I almost don't think of Americans because I'm sure that there are Americans who suffer too. But it's almost like it, it, it doesn't tick me off, but it's, it's almost as if there are people who are doing so well who are complaining. And I remember kind of mentioning something like this to you before. It's, it's, it's all relative, so you don't know what you have. Um, but before we move on, I just, I just want to say that my ideal outcome for all of these topics surrounding race and who's doing well and who isn't doing well is that we just focus on the specific issue that we're talking about and not how it affects races differently, but how it affects people differently. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, the argument that would be made is because a, 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 the random statistical black person is more likely to be poor, therefore the system is broken. It should be the case, in other words, that because black people are 14% of the population, 14, they should make, this is an argument that Ibram Kendi the, the best-selling author of uh, Stamped by the Beginning, writes for The Atlantic, runs the Anti-Racist Policy Research Institute. The he literally, yes, yes. He literally <laughs> makes this argument in his book. He says, I'm almost directly quoting, black people make up 14% of the population, so they should be 14% of those in poverty, 14% of those arrested and incarcerated, 14% of those shot by the police, 14% of those in the top 1%. And any idea that justifies a deviation from 14% is a racist idea. That's how he defines racism. That is so stupid. I think that is... No, like, if you just look at the world, this is the... the these are the debates around inequality and um, that everything isn't equal. You know, like, when you're learning about biology and about an ecosystem... There's a dominant tree and it's like this one tree out of the whole forest that takes up like 70% of the space. It's like in, it's, it's in every natural biological system and it just doesn't make sense when you think about reality. Like reality doesn't work in that way. Like everybody is not equal in the traits that they have and the way traits manifest is that they evolve, I guess would be the right way. That, that doesn't necessarily have to be biological. It could also be socially things evolve. Like uh, certain people move to a certain region um, or in, I don't know, a certain suburb or something. They tend to do things differently and it, it passes on not through genes but through like the social environment. That's what I mean. Like, things can socially evolve, evolve but also um, genetically evolve. Yeah, it finds a certain niche and then it grows from there. So you won't have everybody having the same traits. It just doesn't right. work. Work that way. Yeah, and when I'm trying to persuade people on this issue, I, I sometimes say, just forget forget about black people for a moment because that seems to derange people's minds who are otherwise smart. Just focus on white people and look by ethnic group. French mm. Americans of French descent don't make the same amount as Americans of Russian descent, even though I couldn't tell them apart. There's like a 20 cent income gap. It's like 80 cents on the dollar that mm. fr French make compared to Russians. Why would I mean the, the 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 prevailing ideology on the left, certainly the far left, 
would have to explain that with some kind of system of oppression that is oppressing French people in America <laughs> to benefit Russians. It makes no sense. And you could do the same thing within black people compared to Jamaicans to Haitians to Nigerians to Ghanaians. You'll find all kinds of disparities. In fact, disparity is the norm. This is Thomas Sowell's argument that he's made in at least five or 10 different books. Um, it's the norm, not the exception. Mm-hmm. Like no group is a member for member cop- carbon copy of another group. And all of these systemic racism literature that holds everything equal never holds everything equal. Yeah. You're not holding beliefs, values, cultural upbringing equal, uh, talents, predilections, histories. There are a million things that are relevant to outcomes that you're not holding equal. Exactly. And how do we get people to talk about this other than you and I and my audience or your audience? Like, it's. I don't know. We're just going to keep sitting, talk to people who think like us. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying, I'm making efforts at the moment to export my voice to places where people wouldn't agree with it. Um, working on writing a book, which hopefully will allow me to talk to people or give other people a reason to talk to me that don't already agree. So we'll see. Yeah, I also, I also want to write a book. Actually, I was thinking about this. I've been thinking about it for like eight months now when I yeah. have the time. Um, so something I know you're interested in is a topic of affirmative action. Can you, I think I already know what your ideas are, but maybe I don't. Maybe there's something I don't fully understand. So could you share more about that? You know, it's a really, it's a really complex topic to me. I think, I think more and more I think about affirmative action in terms of trade-offs. Thomas Sowell's uh, famous quip, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. Actually, it's more of a, it's broader than Sowell. It's an economics, it's a principle of economics. There are no solutions in a condition of scarcity. There are only trade-offs. So we have competing trade-offs. We have the value of fairness, of procedural fairness on the one hand. Everyone plays by the same rules. This was more or less what the civil rights revolutionaries advocated. Bayard Rustin and and, and, and Martin Luther King, for the most part, wanted black people to play by the same exact rules. They wanted to end segregation. They did not want black kids getting into college on average, getting 300 points on the SAT lower than white kids. They wanted, they wanted black kids to compete on the exact same playing field, right? So right. there's fairness on the one hand, which I have deep sympathy for. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, there is the value of diversity, which I don't think, I don't write diversity off. I think there is something to diversity. I don't think it trumps every other I don't think it's a master value. What I think you, it's value what do you to think, be treated up. What do you think, but the, what's the value in diversity? Um, well, I'm thinking to myself, would Harvard, would going to Harvard be a better or worse experience if 100% of Harvard students were, let's say, white Protestants from Oregon? Mm-hmm. That was the whole school. Would that be a better or worse place to go to school, holding everything else equal in this thought experiment, even though that's a little um, artificial? I think I think that would be a less rich experience. 
So any deviation away from that circumstance is what diversity is. So to achieve that in a condition where not every group is producing as the same number of, of qualified candidates, you have to trade off against fairness. Okay, I'm sorry. Fairness. Sorry, hold on. I, I know you want to continue more with the other uh, things that are important, but what to the diversity thing, do you think that um, when you're describing diversity, are you only talking about um, this ethnic diversity? Because there's so many different levels of diversity, and I think once you achieve one kind of diversity, you lose another kind of diversity. So I feel as if you almost shouldn't focus on diversity at all, because if you focus on it, you can always approach it from a different angle of what you're trying to make varied, what variable you're trying to vary. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That, that's why, that's why I, I said white Protestants from Oregon. Mm -hmm. So I'm, going, I'm getting geographic diversity, racial diversity, cultural diversity, but what about um, intellectual? Because there are people who can, yeah. they can be all separate, like you and me now. But I could just pick out all these people on the internet who could agree with my views and say, hey, let's go have a convention over in Oregon or something. Right. So even though people may come from different places, the like-minded people from those different places can still come together. I'm making your, I'm like kind of giving you a hard time here. But No, no, no. <laughs> no, I think, I think, well, I think... The reason I use that example is because I think culture is often kind of a proxy for how people think. Culture is I'm more important. Is is good. Rather than yeah. yeah, I'm just I'm I'm just um, I guess I, I I use that ex thought experiment to resist the urge to say that there is nothing to diversity whatsoever. Okay. I think there's something to it. I think it's a value that has to be traded off against fairness. I think, like you, like you point out, each each flavor of diversity is in competition with with, with each other flavor of diversity. So trade offs are inherent, even in the within the concept of diversity. Even if you were to consider that the master value, which I don't, mm -hmm. and it's not obvious to me where to find the trade off between diversity and fairness. Um, I think at the Ooh. moment, probably fairness. overshooting, just based on how much people are lying about affirmative action. People are lying about it. They're saying the reason that not enough black kids would get into Harvard if it were just based on SAT scores is because of systemic racism. Right. That is a lie. That is not true. And I think a lot of people know that it's not true. I mean, the idea is that the the system is built for white people and that somehow Asians are doing much better than white people at getting into Harvard. Why? Why would they be doing it better than white people in a system right. that is built for white people? It makes no sense. Why would blacks from the Caribbean, or I'm, I shouldn't say blacks, I should say people of African ancestry from, from the Caribbean, why do they make up half of the black kids at Harvard and Princeton, even though they only make up 10% of America's black population, right? Like, it doesn't make sense that they would be doing so well, although there are immigration selection effects, of course, but mm -hmm. skin is. color is not the only variable here. There are cultural differences, and people are just lying about the policy. Yeah. Um, I was going to say that I actually, I would definitely place fairness as in procedural fairness above diversity, personally. I would say if you're, when you establish an institution, you can define what the values are that you're looking for. So you could be looking just for academic merit, or you could be looking for, I don't know, they volunteered a lot, or they have particular interest in a certain subject. And then that's what you select for, and it applies to every single applicant. 
So that's what I mean by procedural fairness. That's that I think is more important than diversity. I guess if your school is about diversity, fine. But when I think about higher education and learning, I don't think that should be yeah. the case. Yeah, I'm conflicted about it because on the one hand, I'm not entirely ecstatic about the idea of Harvard being 2% black and 45% Asian, something like that. Yeah. Um, I'm not ecstatic about it, but I'm not ecstatic about any, nor am I ecstatic about Harvard currently. Um, and the fact that you know a black kid could score a couple hundred points lower on the SAT and, and get in when an Asian could have a perfect score mm-hmm. and not get in. So none of these outcomes make me particularly happy. Like I said, we have to find a trade-off we're willing to live with. Mm-hmm. But a bigger picture problem with affirmative action is something the writer Shelby Steele has pointed out, which is that it provides a big picture incentive for black people to always emphasize victimhood because so long as white people feel to some degree guilty for the sins of their ancestors, it'll be easier for black people to be upwardly mobile. It's easier for me to apply for jobs and to get into colleges so long as guilt is pressing this this policy, but so I, it provides a constant incentive. To, oh, okay. But to, to, to go ahead. That's it's funny because to me that's like almost unacceptable because there's no virtue in it. I don't know. Like to me, like that that doesn't make me happy at all. That makes me feel like I need to get to work to fix the lack of. Um, virtue I don't know what the right word is because they're different kinds of virtues um but to me I see no like they're like oh black people are becoming upwardly mobile but it's almost like I'm you're like you're forever carrying around something nasty in your backpack because you decided Mm -hmm. to take that route I don't Mm -hmm. that's how I personally feel about it well yeah I mean that's that's something that a lot of people have have pointed out too which is that there's always a question as to whether you got there on your skill. It's not versus... even, I don't know if it's that. It's more, it's not about the level of pride you can feel. I mean, I certainly worry about the lack of character development because people are, you're just given things. That means you never have to work for it, which is, which in the long run benefits the individual who has to work for it. But it's more, I feel as if it's wrong. Um, it's like violating like a good morality because of how it affects other people. Does that make sense? It's like you're- Because it's, un- because it's unfair? Yeah, it's like unjust. And like, I, that's not something that I want to participate in in society. Yeah, there are competing views of what justice means though, because there's like, we, like we've been talking about, there's procedural justice. And then there's what, what Thomas Sowell would call cosmic justice. I don't know if you've heard him use this yeah, term before. Yeah, yes, I have. I think it's a he 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 compares it to social justice, which I think is I think that's a really important comparison because there is the sense in which people are striving for things to be fair from the point of view of the universe. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they're taking a god's eye view of the world and saying, "Well, how would I make the world if if I were God, su- such that it were." such that it would be fair. And if I were God and I created a species where people look different 
and had a sense of tribal, a sense of tribalism, I would, it would be, it would only make sense to give them all the same level of talent, all similar histories where no group was oppressing the other, the same kind of human, human capital development. And so that, so that none of them felt this deep sense of grievance. If you were a God and you created it in any other circumstance, that would be cruel. It would be cruel to be a God and have created the world exactly like it is now. And that's but, how they look at it. They look at it from the point of view. But it doesn't make any, I get what you're saying uh, yeah. from their point of view, but it doesn't really make any sense um, because if there is a God or if like, then things are already the way God intended because it's this person, God is like all powerful and also the universe we live in, <laughs> this sounds uber dramatic, but it wouldn't exist because, you know, this misses my mouse is different from my hair because there are different attributes that each has and they, they, there's like a continuum of how these, this attribute um, expresses itself visually or whatever other um, feeling sense you want to describe like if you hear it or you taste or smell it. So the what we see in the world around us is due to everything expressing itself differently for different attributes. Does that make sense? So it's almost yeah, as if you're, it's like you're trying to defy the laws of the universe, yeah. like of, of every single thing around you. And that's that sounds kind of like metaphysical, and like I said, dramatic. Yeah, I think that might have gone over my head. Oh, well. But your first point, I understood. <laughs> okay. Your first point, I understood. I mean, the the reason I use the I use the God's eye analogy, it is an analogy. I'm not saying that progressives actually think about God. I'm saying yeah. the style of thinking. One way of thinking about that style of thinking about justice yeah. is that it's it's kind of from a God's eye point of view. It's like, what should the universe look like if, if it were cosmically just? And let's try to get there by all means necessary using policy. It's very naive. But that's that's the so, so when, when you say when you say that affirmative action is unjust to the people who don't get it because it's not procedurally fair. Many, many people are operating on a different definition of what fairness means. Fairness well, means the world as created by God, if it were created fair. With equal outcomes, essentially, for all groups. It's, I think it's very silly, but that's kind of the conception. I mean, to me, the way to go about correcting what you feel is unfair is to do it yourself from the individual person on the individual level rather than modify the world through power structures if that makes sense so it's kind of like the the charity versus welfare argument mm -hmm. welfare through the state mm -hmm. i mean i know schools aren't the state but they are fundamental institutions in our society and it's people are trying to change how unfair in a cosmic sense life has been because it's like things you can't change and things you didn't really affect for some things um, by changing it through the structure itself of the education system rather than say giving See, someone well, an education through some kind of fun that you set yeah. up. What they would say to you, and I know this will sound 
probably just alien to to your ears as someone not born here is that you are not just an individual. That's what they'll say. You're not just an individual. You are a member of a group. You are a black person. You are a black American. You are part of this historical group that has been oppressed. And your fantasy <laughs> of your fantasy of individualism and bootstrapping is just that. It's a fantasy. Uh, you can't operate outside of the context of history. They'll say things like, you can't pretend you can't pretend, don't pretend history didn't happen. Don't pretend history just goes away is a common thing to say. We haven't come to terms with the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. And it's all, it's all well and good if you as an individual can rise up. Um, but there has to be an effort to have the group rise up. I mean, I think there is truth to like, you're never alone. Like you're not an island. But I don't know if my support is from people I don't know and never met and don't really know anything about me. Like, I, there, you do need social support, but not from there. But what they'll say yeah. to that, is, I get this argument all the time. Okay, well, you don't know, I know you don't know every black person, but when the cops pull you over, you have a shared experience. You know something, you have a brotherhood or sisterhood with your fellow black people that white people can't understand. Because you get treated, you're seen as black, you get treated as black, and mm -hmm. white people can't get that. And therefore, you have a fraternity or a sorority with, with other black people. And that gives you an obligation, as it should at least give you an obligation, to carry the group forward somehow and get rid of this fantasy of individualism. I'm ventriloquizing people I disagree with right now, but this is, this is what gets thrown at me. And you, I suppose. Yeah, I've definitely gotten um, it thrown at me. I've mentioned it, I think, when I did a, like, I went on um, Stefan Molyneux's show once. And um, also when you were talking about the whole Michael Brown incident, I think it was you were talking about, that... When I, I was also in college at that time, and I remember going to the cafeteria to get myself some food, and there were these people outside, some black students, who I interacted with, interacted with a bunch, actually, because I was very naive and unaware of this stuff. So I, like, I occasionally hung out with them, and then, like, sometimes I felt kind of weird, but, like, they were kind of nice, so I was like, whatever. And I hung out with, like, other people. But they came, they had these, like, placards about, you know, like, the shooting and da 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 I remember them looking at me. And I, I, I felt the pull, like the social pull, but I was like, I'm late for class and I'm just grabbing my food. <laughs> and most importantly, I don't actually understand what this issue is about because I hadn't, I didn't really know what was happening. Um, and I just like went away. But you, there's definitely like a, like you're almost expected to. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Okay. I'm often walking through Columbia's campus and there's someone handing out flyers that says, do you have a moment? Do you have a moment? to save black lives, which is a really loaded question to ask someone when I'm on the way to, you know, my like writing class or whatever, very loaded question. Cause the only way I can answer if I'm going to class or I'm hungry is no, I don't even have a moment, which makes me an asshole. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if I can curse on your show. Sorry. No, it's okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, there is that, there is that pull. Um, uh, Oh man, I'm, I'm blanking on her name right now, but I, there's this great comedian. Oh uh, God, what's her name? 
not going to remember it. But she had she's she's black American, and she has this joke about how she just doesn't ever feel woke enough around her black friends, huh. and she feels a sense of guilt. She said she feels black guilt. It's kind of that's the riff, it's like a riff on that's white really guilt. Funny. It's really good. I'll send it to you. I after. actually, I really, I really like that term. Yeah. Um, because I, I feel the pressure of it. I don't feel it, but I feel like the pressure of it, which I like choose to ignore, and I think I can afford to ignore it just due to, I like I always think it, if you come from a family where you'd be like disowned, or if like all your friend group would disown you because you didn't follow what they think, it would be much harder to yeah. not think, you know, not give in to that quote unquote black guilt. I think her name is Marina Franklin. Okay, I've never heard of her. I'll take a I'll Yeah, take a I think note. that's her name. Um, something else I wanted to talk to you about is the concept of black culture. I, I really don't like the term. I really hate that people think that a black culture exists. Um, I really get annoyed with a lot of people in the U.S. It's, it's always the U.S. I really think they're the ones that do it the most. Not only, um, but the most. To me, there is no such thing as as a black culture. There's like black. There's like what people want to call black culture, and that's about it, in my mind. Do you think there's such thing as American culture or Jamaican culture? Yes. Why? Because there are. <laughs> because there are shared. There's a shared cultural heritage. Heritage meaning history and um, um, ways of thinking and being, like the way we may express ourselves, such as language, religion, um, stuff like that. Yeah. But I mean, every argument that says there's no such thing as black culture could be leveraged against the idea of Jamaican culture or I could say, well, I will, I just found this Jamaican that doesn't have any of the same beliefs as you doesn't thinks very differently, blah, blah, blah. See, so there's, there's an exception. So therefore there's no Jamaican well, culture. Well, I feel like that's different because the culture doesn't mean that you, hmm. I was going to say the culture doesn't mean that you disagree, but in thought, but it would mean that Say so when I make a certain cultural reference, they're very likely to understand it, whereas someone outside of it might not. So if same I'm, talk, is, I'm talking true, about same is true of, of of black Americans. Yeah, but black Americans isn't the same as black culture. Because when I think the reason why uh, it annoys okay. me is like the whole there are so many other people around the world. You know. Yes. Like that's yeah. Why okay. That, that okay. Stuff. That I agree with. I think I think when in in America when people say black culture. They're usually talking about Black American culture, yeah, but, but sometimes it, but they're it, talking about Pan African, which I think is I agree with you is BS. Yeah, There's but, nothing to that. But once you make that statement, then I feel like I feel like I have to disown being Black because then they're talking about something else. You're like I, something that happened to me, and I talked to one of my um, Jamaican friends about. I didn't even bring it up with her, which is interesting. Like it wasn't because I feel like I would normally be the person to bring something up like that because I talk about and think about these things. But she was saying that she didn't consider herself black anymore. Um, it's kind of like what your friend was saying. And mm. like for me, it was the same thing because 
I just didn't care about the word. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm a black person. And it, like, would, it wouldn't mean much. But now, because there's so much weight behind it, I'm like, I don't even, I just don't want to have that, that term associated with me anymore. Mm. But it never used to be that way. And do you think it's all the talk of black culture has turned you off to the identity label? Um, yes, I think that for me, I actually spent some time like writing about this, like thinking about it and trying to understand um, my own perspective. That's the other thing. Once you come here, you start, you have to like think about everything because you're like, oh, well, am I really all these things people are saying? Like you really have to question things. And I realize that it's, I feel like I'm denying like other aspects of myself or other important parts of me when, because of the weight of the label, mm. like people might think a certain thing. So it's not that, it's not even that I want to, I consciously want to deny it. It's more like there are parts of me that are like, that are upset because my full person isn't being acknowledged. That's mm. the right way to put it. Yeah. So would it bother you if people talked about black American culture instead of black culture? Um, I think it would still, but a lot less. I think I would still be like, why not just say, no, I could see that there's like a black American subculture, but I would be, I would be wary of it because I would know that it still didn't represent everyone. Well, Jamaican culture doesn't represent everyone in Jamaica. That gets back to my own point. Like the, if you if you if you're going to talk about culture, you well, have to acknowledge that it's a very coarse grained concept. There's always exceptions, but there's still regularities to be talked about between groups. If we talk about victimhood as an element of Black culture, like we've been or Black American culture, sorry, as as we've been doing in this conversation, I think that's a valid. It's hard to talk, have that conversation without yeah. the notion of a culture. Yeah, I agree with that. Like you can't even discuss things without generalizing. That is yeah. true. But, but yeah, it does, it does annoy me. So. That's why I, I wrote a piece called Black American Culture and the Racial Wealth Gap um, many months ago, which was the most viral piece that I wrote. What was it? What was the main point? Um, the main point was that there is a 10 to 1 wealth gap between white Americans and black Americans. And uh, there's a narrative around it from people like Ta-Nehisi Coates, Marissa Baradaran, uh, Richard Rothstein, and others that we have to remedy this. We have to remedy this by anti-racist public policy because it was created through racist policy, namely segregation, Jim Crow, slavery. So what we need right now is, uh, you know, if you're Ta-Nehisi Coates, it's reparations. If you're Richard Rothstein, it's uh, government programs to almost force, but maybe just deeply incentivize black people and white people to move into the same neighborhoods to integrate more by somehow incentivizing them with money. Isn't that um, also, isn't that just as racist though? It's not anti-racist, it's also racist. It's trying um, to like, it's trying to socially engineer the population and what happens to different parts of it via race. It's the same thing. Yes. It's a, it's, it's a different motive, that, that, but it's the same action. Yes, yes. It's a different purpose, but it is the same action in the sense that it's social engineering. It's mm. social engineering in reverse, which is just more social engineering. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm against it for that reason. I think most 
most hugely ambitious attempts at social engineering like that fail miserably. They backfire, have terrible effects. Yeah, um, I think it would just be better to let people figure out, even if it takes a long time, like I, people are too impatient, you know, it's, it's like, just let people figure out their race crap yeah. over, over time. I mean, I think it would take a while, but I think eventually, but if you, if you try and do those anti-racist programs, you just create a lot of social tension. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But just to close the loop on that, I, um, on my, the piece I wrote, Mm -hmm. I, I found this data showing that uh, black Americans spend their money very differently than white Americans on the average. If you just look at the statistical median, uh -huh. more black Americans more likely to buy a luxury car in a, any given year, more likely to buy jewelry, more likely to buy expensive clothes, etc. These are art artifacts of black American culture, I would argue, that have been pointed out by comedians like Dave Chappelle. Obviously, if you're a comedian, you can put the right spin on the point to make it funny. Um, and that doesn't really translate well to my medium, which is written prose argument. Um, but I was pointing out that this is something that is, it's more manageable. If we could have a conversation about this and it didn't get shut down by the victim blaming meme every time someone mentioned it it's possible that some progress could be made on that front after all this was this was martin luther king's fifth goal of his five goals was to address the cultural lag and one of the things that king, dr king could specifically you, said sorry could you go through all the five the five goals if you oh, remember them. i have them right here i can just read them to you yeah yeah want. read them okay this is from his uh, Playboy interview. He had a Playboy when, interview? This is back when Playboy was doing really, not that they're not doing high-minded things now, but uh, they were <laughs> actually a serious outlet in the 60s. Okay, this is Dr. King. We have five aims at the, at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. First, to stimulate nonviolent direct mass action to expose and remove the barriers of segregation and discrimination. Second, to disseminate the creative philosophy and techniques of nonviolence through local and area workshops. Third, to secure the right and unhampered use of the ballot for every citizen. Fourth, to achieve full citizenship rights and the total integration of the Negro into American life. And fifth, to reduce the cultural lag through our citizenship training program. And then later he talks about exactly what he means by that. Um, the citizenship training program. Yeah. Or he talked about the, the, the cultural lag. Mm -hmm. Yet Negroes must be honest enough to admit that our standards do often fall short. One of the sure signs of maturity is the ability to rise to the point of self-criticism. Whenever we are objects of criticism from white men, even though the criticisms are maliciously directed and mixed with half-truths, we must pick out the elements of truth and make them the basis of creative reconstruction. We must not let the fact that we are the victims of injustice lull us into abrogating responsibility for our own lives. Our crime rate is far too high. Our level of cleanliness is frequently far too low. Too often those of us who are in the middle class live above our means, spend money on non-essentials and frivolities, and fail to give to serious causes, organizations, and educational institutions that so desperately need funds. Yada, yada, yada. 
by improving our own standards here and now, we will go a long way toward breaking down the arguments of the segregationist. Yeah, when I think at the beginning you were asking me about what's the right way to respond to um, malice from people, and I think that is the best way. It's not not this um, political stuff. It's self-work, but on a group level scale. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's that's the path to getting what you really want. I'm afraid that that project. I mean, Martin Luther King did well with his first four aims, but the fifth one. I just don't think it can happen in the in, a, in the current environment because the second you mention like like that piece got absolutely destroyed in the media in, in my Twitter sphere. Oh, really? There were there must have been at least ten pieces. One of them in the Washington Post, which was actually the nicest, the most charitable, but that just ripped into me for being uh, just for trafficking in racist stereotypes. And it's, it's interesting to me that in Martin Luther King's day, from his perspective, it was totally coherent to have the best interest for black people at heart and to point to the cultural lag. There was no, there was no sense in which anyone who pointed at the cultural lag was, quote, blaming the victim, in his mind, at least. Right. That, that reminds me a lot of that video I made, my, my honest and sincere message to black Americans. Like, I swear, I was trying to say something positive, but the amount of hate that I got for it because I wasn't just saying nice things. Um, it didn't hurt my feelings. Like, there were some nasty comments, but it, it definitely, I definitely felt misunderstood. Mm. I, like, I, I definitely felt... Like I was being misunderstood because I was I was trying to say, hey, even if your path is difficult, you should still do that. Like, try and do your best and focus yeah. on working on yourself or something. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like totally not taken well by many people, and it was yeah. it was not coming from a bad place. Do you have any <laughs> Do you have any disagreements with um, things you've maybe heard me say? You said you watched some of my videos. And maybe you wanted to discuss. Hmm. I don't know if I'm as hard on welfare as you are. Hmm. Yeah, I'm pretty against it. Yeah. Did you, I, I don't know, if, I don't know that I know um, your opinion on it fully, though. Mm-hmm. So if you were in charge of the United States, if you were the first female president, you took over, well, you're not old enough, but if you were president in 2020, well, that doesn't even make sense. If you were emperor, emperor. you had all the power okay. of America. If you had unchecked power, okay. would you get rid of the welfare state overnight? Overnight? Um, I would warn people that a year from now it's ending, and then I would end it overnight. I would. Um, but I, I have to say, this is really important. I'm, okay. I, grew, I was raised religiously. Mm. And um, I've pretty much, except for the past two years, participated in a charity like my whole life. So I'm mm. a very big fan of helping people, just mm. not in that way. Are you still religious? Uh, no, I am agnostic. Okay. However, I... Oh, we've talked about this. Yes. However, yeah, yeah. I would like... I, I hope that there's more to life than what my eyes see. Okay. Yeah, we've talked about this a little bit. Um, 
Yeah, uh, I totally acknowledge the, the the negative effects of the welfare state in the 60s and 70s. My mom used to tell me growing up in the South Bronx, right when in, in the, uh, the Great Society was rolled out by Lyndon Johnson, that it was it was just well known that when the welfare auditors came around, you you couldn't have a man in the house, um, or else you would lose the welfare check. You couldn't have any signs of a man in the house, so men would hide, literally hide, or just you know that wow. that's the kind of thing that's that so incentivizes incentivizes the breakdown of of the family, and. Uh, so I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that critique of the welfare state. That mm-hmm. said... That's not the only, only critique. I also think it's immoral to take from people. So there's the two sides to it. Ta- do you think tax is theft? Are you I do. I do. But, but yeah. I wouldn't... I wouldn't... Wow. I was going back to your if I were emperor thing. But I, I think that's more of a hard course stance to take. That more so than the welfare one. And so, like, I'm in principle, I think that, but I don't think that society, uh, I don't know if I would say if society is ready for it. I don't know. I, I feel as if I couldn't convince my peers to go along with that. Enough, you couldn't convince, in, right. Enough but, people. But if, right. I, if I could, I, I would also. Yeah. See, I think, okay, I think that's where I disagree with you then. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think... I mean, yeah, taxation is a kind of theft, but not all kinds of theft are bad. I think sometimes thievery is better than the alternative. I don't think it's an accident that every modernized uh, market economy is actually a mixed economy that has a social safety net. I think it's kind of just necessary. People will demand it in a democracy. I wish that there and, was a social safety net, but more through like community networks rather than because people would still, I think, fork over tons of their money anyway. It just wouldn't be in that way. Like it just mm-hmm. wouldn't be through that medium of, mm-hmm. you know, allowing the government to grow more. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, that's that's a good point. I mean, I guess you could compare welfare state to community organizations on one hand, and the community organizations would seem to be better. Yeah, and I also but think, I guess how realistic is that? Well, I mean, with the with the decline of religion, with the decline of yeah, I guess with, just with the decline of traditional religion and social fabric in general, how likely is it that we would really cover everyone who needs? coverage just with religious institutions um i think i think the welfare state serves a social function so just like how you feel a need to care for um how you feel a need to care for people and i might feel a need to care for people just because the welfare state disappeared it doesn't mean that wouldn't happen we just find we come up with another way because it's serving function like we would still have that desire so i think because there is a welfare state now it's almost like there's no room for those other institutions to be there and i think i don't know the i don't have like the i can't i think so this isn't i'm not absolutely sure about this 
that there were a lot of community organizations in the U.S. that have kind of died out because of the welfare state. I would also point to places that don't have a strong social safety net, a lot of um, developing countries, because they're not as rich. And um, I guess they're not as well off, but people come up with them. People create things Mm -hmm. to solve the issue. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting question. I think I'm maybe a little more cynical about it than you. Maybe it's mm-hmm. the years of living in New York and practically stepping over homeless people, mm-hmm. uh, learning how to become callous and ignore every time, ignore the suffering of someone that comes onto the train and gives their spiel. Yeah, but that's with a welfare state that those people exist. I, I'm not. It's not clear to me that I would be more compassionate if there were no welfare state. Maybe I would. Maybe I would be. I'm I don't. Sure. I don't. I don't think. I don't think. I don't know. But I. I, I think the with, level yeah. of compassion would still be there. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't know. Yeah, it's possible. Well, you also grew up what? Well, I was. I I grew up with no religion. No. Um, really no family tradition of service or mm-hmm. giving. I know that sounds terrible or selfish, but I grew up with no analog. I, I didn't say that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Terrible or selfish. Um, but yeah, I guess I just, for whatever reason, I can't picture it happening in, in the context of American culture. I can't, it might be one of those things that, Sometimes I think the welfare state is one of those things that we never should have started, but once we start it, you can't undo it. Yeah. That's kind of what Charles Murray said, who wrote the a big book about welfare in the 80s called Losing Ground, which is thought to have kind of influenced Reagan's policy of rolling back the welfare state. He was totally against it. He linked it to the rise, the rise of single-parent homes in the black family, the rise of crime in the 70s. Is that Very compelling. Because um, you said he linked it to, so it sounds like not I think, verified. Yeah, I think some of the data has been challenged. I haven't looked at it, but Glenn Lowry, who is a very smart economist, said that a lot of that data was later refuted. So it's not linked? The welfare states isn't linked? I thought it was linked. to. It's. This is something that I still don't know the answer okay. on. So, okay. um, it was probably, it probably is one of those social phenomenon that had many causes, mm-hmm. you know, five or 10 different small causes. And the welfare state may have been one of them mm-hmm. in terms of the, the rise of single parent homes in the black family. Um, but even later, Charles Murray in an interview, maybe six years ago, admitted that once you have the welfare state in place, he thought taking it away would re-ravel the like the social fabric unraveled and it would kind of come back together but there are some processes that once you start reversing the cause doesn't like in the same way that oh in this in the same way that like reverse segregation like forced integration may not fix the problems that segregation caused I see. reversing the welfare state may not actually reverse the problems that the welfare state caused hmm. i don't think there is Anything else I want to ask you? Is there anything that you'd like to ask me? Because we've really covered a lot of ground. Yes, we have. Yeah. Um, I think we're good. 
Okay. Oh, there is something else. I'm so sorry. I keep doing this. Um, why did you choose philosophy to study? It's the only subject I could study without wanting to blow my brains out in class, feeling like a robot. Because it was, it, was, it was interesting Yeah. to you. Nothing against the other subjects. They're interesting. I just felt like there was less regurgitation in philosophy classes. I like the systematic style of thinking from first principles. Um, the fact that anything is on the table to be questioned, if you can defend it with, uh, you know, chains of logic, that mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it just makes, it's a, the, style, the, the way philosophers think naturally makes sense to my mind in a way that uh, many other subjects didn't. And uh, I felt that they were trivial. And I don't think, I don't actually think that. I mean, all, all the academic subjects, many of them matter. Yeah. Um, not all, but yeah. uh, it, it was just a, it naturally gelled with my style of thinking. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for coming on to yeah. my channel and discussing all of these thoughts and topics with me. Uh, to my listeners or viewers, you can find Coleman Hughes on Twitter. Just look for his name, Coleman Hughes. And you can also find him at afro-optimist.com dot blogspot dot com. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me.